Okay, y'all, this has been a, um, I don't even know what to say. It's been an unbelievable week. Um, this past Thursday, Kelly Irwin texted me and she said this, looking at having to do a second surgery tomorrow. Pray for him that it's unnecessary. Uh, the continued brain swelling uh, was obviously of great concern, and so was Kyle's unresponsiveness. Uh, 9 p.m. that night, the session of Redeemer, which means the leadership of Redeemer made up of pastors and elders, we stormed the second floor of ICU. I mean, it, it looked like that. We get up to the front desk, and there's just, you know, eight of us, seven of us right there. And I said, listen, I know we're breaking every one of your rules right now because you're only allowed two people to visit at a time. And so we had, a, we had an army here, and I said, but we are friends of Kyle. Uh, we are his elders, and we've come here to pray for him. And she just stares at me. And then this huge smile breaks out of her face. And she recognizes Brent Bankston, of all people. <laughs> I shouldn't say of all people. If anybody's going to recognize anybody in our tribe, it's going to be Brent. And she just waves us through, right? So we get into the room, and we surround Kyle's bed, and we lay our hands on him. And we tell him, we love you, Kyle, we love you. We tell him that we're here for him. Uh, we're telling, brother, we know um, you are in great distress right now. And we are so sorry that you, um, that you're in this valley of deep darkness. And Rob Baker read um, James 5, 13 and 15, which goes like this. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. So is anyone cheerful? Man, let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Ah, so we anointed him with oil in the name of the Lord, ah, and we started to pray. And while we were praying, I think every one of us would say there was an intense, uh, increased, strong sense of God. His love, his power, his nearness. I mean, the prayers were honest. The prayers were earnest. The prayers were God-dependent. And I even will say this, the prayers were bold, they were God-exalting. They were gospel-fueled. And uh, according to reports of the nurses and Kyle's mom, almost immediately after we left, 20 minutes after we left, he started getting better. Uh, I didn't know this. I get a call Friday morning from Kelly. Jeff, the doctor said Kyle nodded his head when he asked him a question. He's not sure if he was just nodding, but he was pretty sure he was nodding in response to the question. This is the first intelligent response he's given. He told me, uh, we need to be guarded. You need to be guarded. But this is great news. I just hang up the phone and I'm in absolute shock because I'm a man of faith. <laughs> I said, honey, you're never going to believe this. You're never going to believe what I just heard. She's like, what? And I tell her a story. I mean, we're not done with that story. I go up in my study and I start working on sermon prep. 
And I get another call from Kelly, and she says, you've got to get down here. He is, he is responding. And while on the phone, she actually asked Kyle a question, and I'm listening, you know, I'm on the other end of the line. She's asking him a question. He's nodding. He's squeezing. He gets it. He knows what I'm saying. I said, I'll be down there in a minute. So we head down there. A couple elders meet me there. In fact, uh, Rob Nettles were walking down the hall, and he says, I feel like, uh, I feel like we're going to watch Lazarus come back to life again. And I went, oh, maybe. <laughs> right? And of course, uh, visiting hours are over. So I have to use my pastoral card, which I love doing. I'm a pastor. <laughs> Follow me, Rob. So we get in, and uh, I look at him, and I mean, I'm not kidding. It, it, last night, Thursday night, Friday morning, completely different person. He hears. He's responding. Uh, he's battling to open his eyes. He so bad wants to open his eyes. Kelly said he, he did have some eye openage earlier. Um, I heard after that uh, his first words that he said were to Kelly. And you know what he said? Do you still love me? Gosh. Yesterday, when Kelly walked in, I was told, he said, you look good. Like a man, right? <laughs> no, all I could do, all I could do when I saw him and, uh, is laugh. I mean, what can you do? Laugh. It's just, it's incredible. Um, the session of Redeemer has participated in James 5 many times over the year, and this is the first time we've ever seen anything like this happen. I can tell you that dead fact. So here's the question, and I want to make this really, really clear. Does this mean that all those other times God was less near, less loving, less powerful, uh, less the healer? No way. It just meant that his nearness and his love and his power and his being the healer took a different path than physical, temporary healing in the moment. James 5 is a snapshot of pastoral ministry in the life of the church. A snapshot. Acts 16, 1 through 15 is a live historical feed that taps you into a fruitful ministry in the life of the church. I mean, what we're going to see in Acts 16, 1 through 15 is not successful ministry. And I'm going to beat this thing Beat it into our heads. Real ministry is not successful ministry. Real ministry is not faithful ministry. Real ministry is fruitful ministry. And what we're going to see here is Acts 16 is going to invite us not to do outreaches and not to do mission trips and not to have evangelistic programs and not to do the goofy puppet shows. But Acts 16 is inviting us to be missional people. To be a certain kind of person. To be a person that learns to build their messy life around life itself. To be a person that actually begins to participate in what God is doing right now. In you, in me, in your marriages, 
in the ones you love and the ones you don't love in this church and in Waco and beyond. So please stand for the hearing of God's word. Acts 16, um, 1 through 15. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers of Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observances the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went, out, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we, were suppo- uh, where, we were supp- where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods and, a, and was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. The word of the Lord. Be Please be seated. Nathan, thank you for pronouncing that, that one, those cities. That's why I love having scripture readers. Earlier... Um, Phygra, uh, the, the speaker said Phrygia, and I thought, that's, that's good, it must be a cold place. All right, let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we ask your blessing on your word. We ask that you would do what you do in this text, that you would open hearts, you would open our eyes um, to you. Uh, for Lord, we desperately need to see you. And we know when our eyes are not fixed on you, uh, we sink. We sink hard, we sink fast, so would you uh, raise us up uh, because of your resurrection, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we looked at the beginning of the second great missionary journey last week, and it was off to an auspicious start, a triumphant start, it was off to, what did we do? We saw the first church split in church history. We saw that the second great missionary journey starts off with a bang, but it starts off with a bang of failure. It starts off with Paul and Barnabas splitting over whether to take John Mark or not. And so the the big idea was easy to spot, was it not? I mean, it was easy to say, well, what's the big idea of this passage? Well, ministry is always messy. 
So we're talking about fruitful ministry, though. We're not talking about successful ministry. We're not talking about faithful ministry. We're talking about fruitful ministry. Fruitful ministry is always messy. Those of you that have been in ministry long enough know that that is so true, and that's why it's on the front end before you go in to warm you up. Today, in the next part of the journey, God makes a missional person. He shapes him, he develops him, he restructures him, he makes a missional Paul more and more into who he's really like. He's making a certain kind of person. So he's not making someone who does missions, he's making someone who is missional. He's not making someone who does evangelism, he's making someone who is evangelistic. You cut him, he bleeds evangelistic blood, right? There are three key people in this text to making Paul a missional person, and these three people are key to us becoming a missional person. So first you have Timothy. Remember him? Those who are familiar with the Bible? He's an interesting guy, right? Then we have this Macedonian mystery man. Can't wait to get to him. You're never going to believe what one famous Bible scholar says that person is. And then we're going to look at Lydia. And these three people, as we journey With these three people and Paul interacting with them, Paul is being deepened and developed in being a missional person, a certain kind of person, okay? May we become that kind of a person. All right, verses 1 through 5. Look at your bulletins. Look at your Bibles. Paul and Silas are traveling west through modern-day Turkey. Modern-day Turkey, they are moving west. I love doing visuals. Why? To revisit the churches he already planted, The first missionary journey, he planted these churches in what's called the Galatian area, or Galatian churches, which is about central, modern-day Turkey. He's revisiting them, his first missionary work. These are the first Gentile churches. In other words, these are the first churches to go into unchurched areas. I mean, you know what Alexander the Great said about Jerusalem? It's the religious center of the world. Alexander the Great was so intrigued by the Israelite and the Hebrew and their God that he showed them favoritism. He was inclined towards them because Jerusalem was known throughout the world as the religious center of the world. And remember when God, when Jesus rose, he said, you're going to receive power and my power is going to take you to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the world. These first churches are the beginning of the remotest parts of the world. And what's so fascinating that those of us that are just picking up now and haven't read earlier, these outpost churches almost didn't make it. Christianity almost stalled right from the beginning. And you got to ask yourself, how does that happen? I mean, what has the message to unplug Christianity What has the power to do that? What could be so powerful that it could actually stop Christianity dead in its tracks right when it gets out of the gate? And the answer is this. It's not as shocking and it's not as diabolical as you might think. Adding something we do to Jesus When we add something we do to Jesus, it has the power to depower Christianity. And that's what almost happened in these churches. Some of the church leaders, which John Mark was probably a part of, 
came from Jerusalem and they started going to these first churches that were just planted, that Paul just planted in his first missionary journey. And they started saying, you know, it's Jesus, certainly. But it's Jesus plus something you do. In other words, circumcision or the law of Moses that gets you to be accepted and blessed by God. That allows you to be connected, that allows you to feel deeper in your relationship with God, that allows you to grow and move on and become holy in the Christian life. In other words, you've got to have Jesus, certainly, because this is a religious version, but you've got to have Jesus plus something else. That's the power. That's how Christianity is to be defined. In their eyes, it was Jesus plus something. So you obey in order to be accepted and loved and blessed by God. Jesus plus your performance. Now, Paul's response to Jesus plus teaching is the book of Galatians. So if you haven't read that, that's a great book to read. That's his response. But in Acts 15, all the apostles got together and they held a council called the Jerusalem Council. And they said, what are we going to do with this? And their response is in Acts 15, which is just one chapter prior to where we are. And now Paul's going to these churches that just got thrashed by this Jesus plus teaching. There's controversies galore. People aren't liking each other. Paul and Peter had a showdown. And now Paul and Barnabas on the second missionary journey, they break up because But I think the majority of scholars are correct. John Mark was one of these leaders that left in the middle of the first missionary journey, went back to Jerusalem to tattletale on Paul. He's not preaching Jesus plus nothing. Here's the highlights from the council. Are you ready? Verse 10 and 11 of 15. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, since we've been around, since you've been around, you don't even keep what you say must be kept. You can't do what you say must be performed. Nobody in the history of the world has been able to have a validating performance record, so why are you trying now, people? And then they continue. But we believe, contrast, contrast. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, Jesus plus nothing. Paul says it this way in Galatians, which I like better because he's just more my style. Oh, you foolish Galatians. (laughs) Right? I mean, who, who doesn't love that? Somebody that loves you enough to get in your face. Oh, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And if you're following the text and you know this is the first churches of the first missionary journey, they're in modern day Turkey. They did not see Jesus publicly portrayed as crucified. They weren't there. But Paul is saying, you were there. That's interesting. How was the portrayal of the death of Jesus vividly real to them? Answer, because I preached it to you. Because when the gospel of Jesus plus nothing goes forward, Jesus actually shows up. And he powerfully vividly you see that he died for you 
Now that's power. He goes on and he says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did you become a Christian? Now it's present tense. Did you become a Christian and receive the spirit? And then do you continue in the Christian life getting more of the spirit? You got two choices. Did you get it first? And did you get more of it? More filling and more growing and more deepening and more maturing with the Holy Spirit. By works of the law, your performance, by something you do, good things, have a quiet time, you bet, pray, mm hmm. Or by hearing with faith, hearing what someone else has done. Which one? unleashes heaven on you, brothers and sisters, Paul says. And then he finishes it by saying, have you, are you so foolish having begun by the spirit that you are now trying to be perfected? That means growing in the Christian life by the flesh. According to Paul and the apostles, Jesus plus nothing is Christianity. We are accepted, we are loved, we are blessed only because of the performance of another. You contribute nothing. I contribute nothing. And when that settles into you and me, you come alive. Thankful joy erupts. Paul says you get filled with joy and peace and hope and life and energy and you become a missional person, a certain kind of person. Because now you see that what the mission is, well, I better read the text. Watch what happens when this message is unleashed, verse four and five. That's why we're doing this. Just so you know, we're, we're saying this because it's in the text. Look at four and five. As they went on their way through the cities, first missionary journey, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that have been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. They're given the results of the Jerusalem council, what we just read. So the churches, this is the result. This is what happens. They're hearing this. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in the numbers daily. Jesus plus nothing strengthens faith. The gospel makes you a more stable and deep person. The gospel, Jesus plus nothing, reaches you, restructures you, renews you and revives you, puts you back together, makes you something that you're not. And only that message can. Only that power is the power of God for your salvation. There is no other power. But some of you are thinking, but wait a minute, Jeff. I mean, I get the irreligious person needs to hear the gospel. I get we got to do outreach. I get that I got to do some four little booklet or something like it and talk to people about him. I get that, but I don't get how Christians need to hear the gospel. I don't get how Christians hearing the gospel is what makes them holy and obedient and changes their life and fuels the Christian life. I don't get that. Here's what we have to see. Notice that Paul is not preaching the gospel here in this text to the unchurched. He's preaching 
to the churches he already planted. He's preaching the gospel to believers. He's preaching the result of the Jerusalem council and the whole summary of his message in Galatians. Jesus plus nothing, not to the unreached, not to the irreligious, not to the unchurched, but Christians. And they were strengthened in their faith. They were strengthened in what? Their roots started going deep into Jesus, who he is and what he's done. Their stability and their support and their energy and their love for life and for God and for people was coming out of the foundations and the power of who Jesus is and what he's done. Not some flimsy weed of what we do or don't do. But the oak tree of who Jesus is and what he's done. (sighs) The churches, verse 5, were strengthened in the faith. I'm glad that word's there. Now, one person came to embody Jesus's, or Paul's Jesus plus nothing ministry at this time. Who was he? Who, Who is the signpost, the symbol of this whole ministry in this part of Paul's life when everything's in chaos, everything's up for grabs? Did what I just do, is it gonna fail? Are these people gonna... Are they going to go on? Are they going to be foolish? What's going to happen? And he revisits, and who is part of those churches, and who comes out of the chaos but doesn't buy the false teaching and literally replaces John Mark, who probably did? Timothy. Timothy. When, verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. When you and I become convinced and we come and we become convinced and we become committed that the gospel is both for the Christian and the non-Christian, the churched and the unchurched, we become missional. We become a certain kind of person. We start seeing that the gospel, the mission, life is really about one thing and that is gospel growth in people, period. So Jeff, are you a seeker church? Uh Uh-huh. Are you a church just for Christians? Uh Uh-huh. Are you a church that only seeks out Christians or seeks out? There's no false dichotomy. There's no such thing. It's gospel growth in people. So yes, we will reach those who are unchurched. You bet. And yes, we will reach ourselves. You bet. Gospel growth and people. And when you get committed to that and you're convinced of it, you're not just someone who does ministry from 12 to 2 every other Saturday. You are a missional person who might do ministry from 12 to 2 on every other Saturday. You become a certain kind of person. And that way you're after it in your life, you're after it in your marriage, you're after that in your kids, you're after that with your loved ones, you're after those that you don't love. Gospel growth in people is it. That's a life. I hate using world. All those words drive me crazy, bug me today. So I'm trying to find another word. I'll come up with one. Something. It's coming. I can feel it. Okay, the next key person in developing Paul into a missional person is found in verses 6 through 10. Are you ready? Now, Paul and Silas continue to travel west through modern-day Turkey. 
But something strange happens to them. You see that in verse 6? <clears throat> and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Okay, so here they are. They planted churches in central Turkey. They're wanting to go west and plant churches in what's called Asia at that time. But they get there, and they're gonna, he wants to plant churches, and, and he's forbidden to. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit blocks him. Now, we're not told how the Holy Spirit blocks him, but boy, howdy. I would love to know how the Holy Spirit does that. Because that would be a major, like, here's your, I, I would have the corner on 10-step teaching on how to discern the world of God in your life. You want to you know how to get blocked by God? Right here. But we're not given how. We don't know how. And it's fascinating, but the Holy Spirit blocks them. So they get blocked here, so they say, let's go north. God's will is north. That's where we'll do ministry. That's where we'll plant churches. That's where the gospel's going to go. They go north. They're blocked again. Strike two. I mean, if you were on a Jesus plus something you do theology, right now you're having a heart attack. Right now you are spiraling into despair. Because right now you're thinking, what did we do to cut ourselves off from the guidance and blessing of God? Timothy, where's your performance, bud? Was it something your mom did? Let's go to your ancestors. Do you see what happens? But if it's Jesus plus nothing, oh well, keep going. Plug away, relax, rest. God's in control. A different way to live. An emotionally different way to live, right? So they go north, and in verse 7, when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, which I told you, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas, which is a coastal port city on the northwest corner of modern-day Turkey. Across the sea would be Greece, okay? That's where we are. And this is where the second person comes in. You ready? Verse 9, and a vision at Troas. When they're still trying to figure out what in the world are we doing? What in the world is God doing? And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia, which is Greece, was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. <laughs> now, here's the wonder of all wonders. I have to say it has nothing to do with this passage, but it's so funny. It's interesting. No, it does. I mean, it'd be great if it was true. I would wish it was true because I love the guy. But it's not. Uh, World-famous Bible scholar William Barclay said the man in the dream was Alexander the Great. I love that. I love Alexander the Great. I love that time period. I wish that were true. There's no way that was true. Come on. So regardless of the identity of the man, Paul heads to Greece. He's off to Europe. And I want you to feel how incredible this is. Europe, Europe becomes the staging area, the main church camp for reaching the rest of the world, for the gospel being here right now, for the gospel going to Africa, for the gospel going to North America, Latin America, Oceania, Asia. That's how significant this is. So here's the point of the mystery, man. It's found in verse 7. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. The wording is very intentional. Up until this time, we're told the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Spirit of Jesus. 
blocked them. Why? Got to go back to chapter one. Got to go back to chapter two. I told you, that's the lens that we're to see and interpret the rest of the book. And the lens in chapter one and chapter two is the ascension of Jesus. It's the throne, the crowning of a king. And this king is crowned and he is the resurrected king and he is directing the missionary reaching of the world. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. He's loaded with it. And from that place, he is in charge of ministry, all ministry. It means it's God's ministry. It's God's church. It's God's mission. It's God's work. And he's actively, actively at work right now. Right now. Some of you know this story. Some of you don't. When I was getting close to come to plant this church in Redeemer, I got a little cold feet. Got a little anxious, a little perspiration. Um... And I was talking to my mentor and my favorite professor, and I said, Dr. Hannah, what am I going to do? What am I doing? Please, come on. What am I really doing? I mean, what am I going to do? I'm just going to go down there and raise a flag and say, here we are. Come join us. I mean, what am I doing? I should just stay at Park City's Presbyterian Church. It's a big church. I have a good salary. It's safe. And he's like, Jeff, come on. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to go down to Waco, and you're going to see if Jesus will build his church. And if he doesn't, go into coaching. And it was like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Jesus is in charge of his church. Jesus is king of redemption. Jesus is the reigning rescuer. He will build his church. So I can relax and I can rest and I can now start becoming a missional person. Why? Because a missional person is someone who starts realizing it's no longer about you, it's all about him. In other words, my identity, I'm free. My identity And my value and my worth as a person is not tied to whether this church succeeds or fails. Do you know how freeing that is? When this is your call and this is your career? When everybody else in the denomination and around the world is is measuring each other by how big and how broad and how successful their churches are? What a relief. How relaxing. So it's not about me reaching people. It's not about me changing hearts because I can't. It's no longer about taking yourself so seriously. I remember Shane used to say that to me. Jeff, Jeff, stop taking yourself so seriously. Oh, okay, okay. Gosh, yes. Whew. Right? Those are great words. We become missional when we see the privilege of participating in what Jesus is doing. It is a privilege to participate in what Jesus is doing. It's not um, a praise earner. It's a privilege. Because ministry is all about 
His grace, whether you're the one doing it or the one receiving it, it's never about boasting. Not the one doing it and not the one that's now being ministered to. It's all about a privilege and a pleasure to be a part of what he's doing. We become missional when we can rest and relax in Jesus actually saving, working, performing, doing the acts of the apostles in acts and the acts that are taking place in your life right now. He's the one that is doing all the saving, reaching, reviving, justifying, sanctifying work right now. He is alone. No help, no contribution. This doesn't eliminate means, and we're going to look at that in a second, but it certainly gets perspective. Because now when you go up to people and you start ministering, and a missional person approaches situations like this, it goes like this. It's not, I've showed up, let's get the action started. It's walking up to a situation and it's saying, oh God, where, Jesus, are you already at work here? How are you already at work in this person's life? What are you doing right now in this person's life? Do you know how radically different that changes your parenting? You bring your agenda, your impact, your reaching, your life change, or God, how are you at work in my child? Will you open my eyes to show me what you're doing and how I can participate in whatever's next for them, for him, for her? Why does God have Redeemer here in Waco? We can come in and enforce our agenda and our vision, or we can come in and we can say, Lord, we want to participate in what you're already doing here in this city. How can we be a part? What's our role? Where's our place? That's what we'll do. Last key person that helped develop Paul into a missional person, verses 11 through 15. We're now in Greece, all right? We're in Greece. Philippi to be exact, and Paul preaches the gospel there. Now watch what happens when he preaches the gospel. Verse 14, one who heard us. Let me say something real quickly about the us and the we that started in verse 10. You know that, that first per, second person, no, first person plural, we or us, that is at Troas is when it started. Many folks believe that's when Luke joined the team. So up until that time, he's narrating Paul's dictation, right? Now he's a part of the team, and that's why we got the we. I just thought that was cool. Sorry. Uh, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That is the hope of every preacher. And that's your hope, and that's my hope. The hope is this. The resurrected Lord opened Lydia's heart. You can't change your heart. You can't open your heart. You can't change someone else's heart. You can't open their heart. Let that sink in. If that sinks in, you become a missional person. That does not damper mission. That does not damper power and passion and engagement in mission. It it burns it up. It throws gas and fire on it. On Tuesday, I'm about ready to do my annual pilgrimage over to Truett Seminary and talk with the leading 
professor in the country who's written more books against this view that I hold here and that we hold here and that we think the scriptures teach. So what's my hope? You know, it used to be, he, he called me the first time and he said, listen, I've looked everywhere all over Waco for a living, breathing, self-conscious, what he called Calvinist. And we could explain that another time. I said, yeah. He says, you're the only one I found. So can you come in and talk to our students? Those of you know, this is now a story of legend at Truett and here. I walked in. Well, you had to walk in and then turn a corner, and then there was the class. So I walked in, and I knew that I was just about ready to see the first person. I jumped in and went, ha! I'm it! I'm him! I am a living, breathing Calvinist. Beware, right? So anyhow, I got attacked. I was thrown to the lions. It was a great time. Next year, one person agreed with me. Two, three years later, two or three people agreed with me. Now I go in, I'm like, okay, who, who else believes the theology we're about ready to talk about? Half the class will raise their hand, right? Interesting, isn't it? But far from what he would say and what that tradition says, why would you ever do evangelism? And my answer is, I can't do evangelism. I can't minister unless God opens hearts. If he doesn't, and it's up to that person, or it's up to me to make the great presentation and sell the goods, good night. No, I I would rather go into coaching. No, I take that back. I'd rather make a lot of money. (laughs) I'm letting you in a little too much about me today. (laughs) All right. um, Jesus alone opens hearts, and it doesn't mean he doesn't use means. Do you see that? He used Paul. Just because Jesus is the one that changes hearts and he opens hearts, he uses means, he uses you and me, he uses Paul, he used a sermon. And more importantly, he used the scriptures, he used the message of the gospel that's fresh off Paul, that he is fresh and ignited, that it's Jesus plus nothing. He has confidence, he has power in it. He's enlivened by it and he preaches it. And while he preaches it, Jesus shows up and says, Lydia, come forth. Arise, live again. That's that's our hope and mission. That's our hope and ministry. If you get that and you're committed to that, you become a missional person. You're not just someone who does evangelism. Does your heart need change? Does someone you love need changing? Someone you don't love need changing. Well, what are you going to do? I mean, unlock your heart, stupid. That's you. Come on, open your heart. Don't you get what's happening? Or, oh, God, resurrected reigning rescuer, open their heart. King who has all authority in heaven on earth, who has the power of the kingdom, who has the power to say, let there be and there is, would you speak? If you get that, you're gonna be bold in your prayers. Oh God, change my heart. Oh God, change that person's heart. Please change that person's heart. And you're gonna be bold in taking risks 
You're going to be bold and getting radical because you know Jesus is the reigning rescuer. He specializes in it. It's innate in his character to rescue us and to rescue others. When he took his throne, he assumed command of a rescue operation so much so, no, Paul, no, Paul, yes, Paul, over there. I'll take care of that later. Other people will be going there. A missional person is someone who gets the mission. The mission is gospel growth and people. A missional person is someone who gets that Jesus is resurrected right now and he's actively at work accomplishing his rescuing plans. A missional purpose gets that Jesus alone changes hearts. Amen.